Okay. Hola. So we covered May and June in the first episode. Right. So let's start with uh, a month chock full of releases, and that is July 1996. And uh, that summer, it opened with... Um, hey, so it, uh, Independence Day is what opened July 2nd. Was that the start of the 4th of July weekend being prime property? Not, I mean, not prime. I mean, 4th of July weekend is always like a big weekend in the box office. I think this might be the first time where uh, <laughs> that became part of a marketing strategy. But they always released a, 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 you know, a big film, you know, a couple of big movies during that weekend. But uh, this was the first time where that was actually in the marketing. They yeah, did. They did try to make it Will, Will Smith ground, though, right? Which, yeah. which that, that trend died off with Wild Wild West. Huh? Yeah. Well, Terminator 2 was released that same weekend, I think, too. So, yeah, I guess you, when you think about that, it does go back a couple of years. Mm. Yeah, so they, they've, they've done in Die Hard 2 in 1990 was also the, the 4th of July weekend. So, you mm-hmm. know, they've, they've uh, I think, Roger Rabbit, you know, so Bat- Batman. Batman was the 4th of July weekend, like June 30th. So, like I said, they've, they've obviously done it as, you know, because everyone's out and about. Uh, so they've right. done it. It's just never they've, have they actually incorporated literally as part of the marketing, as part yeah. of the film, as part of the storyline. Right. So. Well, I have um, obviously Independence Day, a massive international, widely beloved right. success. Mm-hmm. I, I was always annoyed as shit by it. <laughs> um, this is a this is a class and. This is and obviously Independence Day. This is not the first time this happened, so I'm not going to blame Independence Day for this. But this is a a classic example. You know, if they ever teach a class about the, you know, summer movies. This is where there's a classic example of marketing being genius and getting people to the theater. Like you know, people had to see the movie, and. Um, I, you know, we all went opening weekend. I mean, I, I know I did. I went opening day. Uh, had to see it. Trailer was, remember, it was a Super Bowl trailer. Uh, and it was a great trailer. Trailer, the trailer gave you the money shots. Um, so, you know, it was, you had to see it on a, you know, this is kind of a, a telltale thing of like, uh, different between then and now, because now, you know, everyone's got these mobile devices and all this stuff. But this whole thing of back then, you, you know, they gave you the money shots. You had to see it on a big screen. That was the thing. It's like, I want to see that again on a big screen. And, you know, then you saw the movie and you had fun. At least I had fun. I was, um, I was, uh, I was 17 about going on 18. I'm going to turn 18 that year. So I was, you know, I was prime target probably for this. And, you know, it, in an audience, you know, there is something to be said about a, a, an audience movie to see in a packed theater at that moment. And in that circumstance, Independence Day did deliver those those goods. The problem is, you know, when you see it now or, you know, when you saw it five years later, you know, on a Saturday afternoon on, on HBO at your on your at your home, uh, you had some fun with it, some nostalgic fun with it, but you also more glaringly could see the rickety parts of the plot 
and it had a very Irwin Allen disaster film uh, plotting um, to it. And, uh, you know, and they, they obviously tried to duplicate this marketing strategy when they did Godzilla. Super Bowl trailer, a couple of money shots, you know, get everyone in the audience. But that movie was actually, you know, we all could see how bad that movie was, even in the theater. Um, ID4, Independence Day, uh, it did, I think, it does have, it still has, Will Smith does give a real charming star performance. Jeff Goldblum doing his Jeff Goldblumish thing. And so there are these fun moments. It's still always fun to see the White House blow up and see this other stuff. And, and those early shots of the of the flying saucer over the city and casting that long shadow, those are still those are still like the best uh shots in the movie. Um I tell you what's the I tell you what the best thing about that whole that whole weekend that release was and it was a genius part talking about marketing. That's when they they uh, they dropped the trailer before Independence Day for the re-release of Star Wars, the special edition was was attached to Independence Day, and that was like yeah, that was the know, best part. That's of what it. you that's that's what you really wanted to see. Adam, what do you think of ID Four? Well, it started one of the most annoying trends in as far as marketing goes. I think it's uh, it wasn't the first movie to do this, but it was certainly one of the ones that uh, caught on, shall we say? And uh, you know, it's it's when they were too lazy to actually announce the title, so they just came up with the, the first <laughs> letters of each name, ID four. And so for the next ten years, that's all we heard. Yeah. I can remember going as far as the mid 2000s with Scooby Doo two. It was SD two. It's like you know, is there no end to this horseshit? So anyway, I uh, yeah, that was an annoying trend that I think that I mean T2 obviously we had had five years earlier, so it wasn't the first instance of that. But it, I don't know, it became a thing, and it's like every movie that came out after that had some sort of a uh, the letters were the identifying marker, and it's just I don't know, it just rubbed me the wrong way. So that's yeah. my one of my takeaways. The film itself, okay, you know, it trots out every cliche from every 50s sci-fi movie that you've ever seen, and I saw it opening day, too. I was the same way, and it was it was fine. I never hated it, never disliked it all that much. Just, I was kind of, ha, ah, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> anyway. I mean, my my problem with, I did watch it opening day, too, like everybody else, apparently. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of goodwill towards it. It, it. it made people happy. They applauded at the end of it, the screening. Yeah. Uh, and I understand that need for mindless fun. And I liked it on that level. But, Aaron, you're right. It's it's a Irwin Allen movie with better special effects. And none of the humor for me worked. It was so forced. Randy, oh, yeah. Randy Quaid is about the most annoying presence uh, and I, I liked Randy Quaid prior, even when he played annoying characters. All right, you alien assholes. In the words of my generation, up yours! Dad, what's he doing? Come on. Come on, baby, come on. Good luck, buddy. And I, I, I kind of rolled my eyes at the whole 
it's, it's such like fake raw raw kind of yeah uh but it it is what it is it's all silliness but um well i would say real quick my two footnotes one that um if anyone even bothered to even attempt to see the uh, sequel 20 years later um uh, that is a uh, just watching 30 minutes of that sequel is just a you know exhibit a exhibit one defense of just at least the first one was made with some competence because that sequel is just probably one of the worst movies yeah, I'd ever even, made. Yeah, I'd forgotten that there was a sequel. I did remember. Then, I did remember liking the last sequence of the sequel though. And then part in the second thing I'll add, uh, I think I think the best of those letter number uh, thing is my favorite is the upcoming one, KFK two. That can be a good one. <laughs> KFK two. <laughs> I'm sad that he didn't uh, subtitle that movie back into the left. There you go. That would have been the one. Uh, July 5th, Phenomenon. John Travolta. Phenomenon. Big hit. Yeah. yeah. 1996 is kind of uh, the peak of Travolta's, like, you know, renaissance, his comeback. Because um, he opened the year with Broken Arrow. He has Phenomenon in the summer. And then he, he ends the year with uh, Michael. So, you know, he has, like, Three in a row, bam, 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 and phenomenon. I remember at the time I, I saw phenomenon at one of these advanced screenings, like a week, you know, a week earlier, like radio sponsored screening, and I remember being kind of annoyed with it. Um, I just I, I couldn't get into it. I've, I've seen it again, obviously since, and he's very charming in the movie, and uh, his, his performance probably the best thing in it. Uh, the whole the premise of it. It's not the premise. I don't have a problem with the premise. Uh, I, I I can accept the premise. I have a problem with the way it's executed and the way the uh, the whole the way the townspeople uh, react and treat him. I, and it's always been this way with certain, these types of movies, you know, like this and like you know, Powder and a couple. Whenever you know, there's a person who you know can do tricks with their mind or or has some kind of special power. I always feel like in the real world, like people would be like, "Oh man, why don't you come over and like show my kids what you can do?" They'd be like impressed and like. They, like, want to invite you to parties and, like, have you do your thing. Instead, they always like to turn it into this, like, parable of, like, board up the house. He's a freak. You know, get out the torches. And, yeah. and I've, I've never liked that whenever they do that with the with these types of stories. I always wish they'd do one of these stories where the town actually, like, hey, we got our local weirdo who can do kind of weird stuff. But he's – we don't know how he got these powers, but he's handy around the town. You know, I always like it if I'd like to see that version. Um, but I like Travolta. He's very, you know, he has a very sweet presence in the film and gives a sweet performance. And and Duvall's good as like the lone sane person in town who like speaks up for him. But overall, it's not. Well, I mean, that element of the movie that you don't quite like is probably the most realistic part of it. I mean, we we do have a history of of uh, a fear against the unknown or the different or the other. It's not. It's all, but it's always done at the wrong pitch. It's always. It never builds. It never builds like to you know first suspicion and then you know uh, you know that kind of deal. It always starts off. It literally starts off at eleven. It always starts off at eleven, and it, it you know there's no real justification for it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially since they've known this guy the whole his whole life. So they had. It's not like he, he's not an unknown. He lived in the town 
from from day one. So they do know him, but now he can do this. So it'd be one thing if he was a stranger, came into town and he can like start bending spoons and stuff. I can get them being scared of that, you know. But since they've known him his whole life and now he can do this, you know, it'd be a little more, you know, slow racking up of the this, of the distrust. So you know, that's always bothered. And well, and you know, John Turtletop, uh, the director, you know, he he has his pluses and minuses, but you know, he's always He's always been a real middle-brow director. Um, you know, he, he's one of these guys who you hire because he's going to get you on time and on budget, but he's not going to exactly, like, you know, dazzle you with his filmmaking prowess. Yeah, my problem with the film was I think I was with it until the, the – uh, and spoiler, spoiler alert – uh, the death scene at the end of the film I thought was one of the most unrealistic death scenes I've ever seen in a film. It was just laughable, almost. So I think uh, that undid it for me. Um, but anyway, I'll leave it there. And then, of course, we get one of the one of many in a long line of very drippy, sentimental Eric Clapton ballads for the credits that goes on to be like a you know number one hit on the adult contemporary radio. Yeah. yeah, big hit. Big hit on pop charts too, I think. So, yeah, yeah. big hit. And then you have but the uh, the crazy love over her cutting his hair. That is that, that, <laughs> is, a great, that is a great scene. The where she like offers to cut his hair, and it's real. It's a it's a quiet scene. It's a silent yes. scene. That's a nice. I, I like my men hairless. <laughs> Cut, cuts off all of his hair. A big romantic scene, and by the end of the scene, he's powder. And it, uh, you know, it's the same movie. Okay. All of his hair's gone. Guys, anybody? Is this on? July yeah, 10th, Harriet the Spy. Blown opportunity. <laughs> blown opportunity because anyone who knows this book uh, knows it's like one of the great uh, children's books of all time. The last, you know, and it's from 1965, I believe. And anyone who's ever read the book knows it's like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a perfect book. Um, and you're kind of amazed it took them uh, 30 years to even do an adaptation. And then when they do it, you know, the book, it's all there in the book. All you got to do is follow the book. And they, they uh, you know, they kind of, they don't, they don't extract, they just, they take the bare bones of the storyline and some of the outlines of the plotting, but they, they don't, they don't take the, the meat of the story, the heart of the story. And, and anyone who's read it, it, it's a, it should be a, it's a rather easy story to ad, adapt into a movie. It could have been a small classic. And I don't know what happened. Um, it's all it's all there, literally on the page. Like okay, just follow this follow this text, and you will have a really good movie. And um, for some reason, they uh, they they didn't. Um, so that's a shame. Uh, you know, it's been 25 years. Um, you know, I think it's more than enough time has passed that you could readapt Harry the Spy and do it right. Okay, July twelfth is Courage Under Fire, and that's a movie I liked. I think I've seen it twice. Yeah, good performances. Clearly... You know, Ed, Edward Zwick is one of those guys that uh, he 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 tries to make movies with relevant themes, but he mm-hmm. tries to make them as entertaining as escapist movies would be. Uh, and uh, I like uh, I always like Courage Under Fire, and of course it's it's extremely notable. Well, for for one thing, in the immediacy of the movie's release, and 
a second thing for the aftermath of it, which is Meg Ryan embracing this big, dramatic, out-of-character turn. And then afterwards, of course, it was, for many, the discovery of, of Matt Damon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, his first kind of he had a small Showcase. supporting role, and it really, really sticks out. And also, uh, it's unfortunate it didn't get more work for um, Lou Diamond Phillips because he's also good in a, in a larger supporting role. Shows real, you know, uh, you know, strength. That's kind of a, you know, the uh, a flawed bad guy character. Um, yeah, Zwick, Zwick is a good. I mean, his uh, first film is um, about last night, which is like one of the better. Uh, rom-coms from the 80s that has a you know it has a rat pack uh whiff to it but you know it obviously is one of the you know it's rob lowe's best work and demi moore's some of her best work and then he followed up with glory which is great his tv work 30 something and then uh legends of the fall which is underrated and then this was his follow-up legends of the fall Legends of the fall while not a critical hit this was, uh, was a big box office hit and made brad pitt a international star so this was his follow up and this is this is uh what's interesting about Kirk and the Fire in hindsight, this was clearly the uh Fox studio and a studio's idea like, well this is gonna be the uh that that summer release Oscar movie that always there's always that one dramatic uh movie in the summer that's also our the Oscar movie that gets to you know, get some Oscar nominations at the end of the year. And Kirk and the Fire might have been that because Denzel does give a Oscar worthy performance, but it goes to the high quality of 1996 that Kirk and the Fire got nothing at the end of the year. I mean, this is a year where Fargo has already come out, and we got Lone Star, and we're going to have a bunch of stuff coming out in the fall. So, I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing about Kirk and the Fire. This was, in a, in a lesser year, like in, uh, the year before 1995, Kirk and the Fire might have been in the Oscar race, in the Oscar conversation, but 1996 was so packed, it, it couldn't withstand six months of uh, quality stuff, but Kirk and the Fire is great. And yeah, Meg Ryan. And now the thing about Meg Ryan, she was doing, uh, she was trying to toggle because you know '94 saw When a Man Loves a Woman and IQ, and then '95 saw French Kiss, and then she goes and does okay. I need to do another uh, dramatic role, and she does uh, this and a, and a supporting dramatic role. So she was for a while there, she was doing a good job of toggling back and forth. Yeah. So it's a it's a good movie. Yeah, I remember liking it. Okay. Uh, that same day, uh, Jean Reno, The Visitors, it grossed almost $100 million worldwide. It was a Weinstein uh, Miramax. Anybody see that? I don't even think a it, French comedy? I don't even think it was released in the States. I don't think it was released in the States. Yeah, I never did see it. I'm aware of it, but never did. No. Okay. Uh, well, it says worldwide. Domestic, mm-hmm. domestic. It made seven hundred thousand. Uh, okay. That's quite a big gap. <laughs> uh, July seventeenth. This is the movie you guys have been waiting to talk about. Kazam, Shaq. <laughs> Shaq plays a genie, right? Yes, this was the live action Aladdin, as it were. Uh, yeah, you know, this is one of those, obviously, this, is, this was a uh, high concept in search of a movie, in search of a script. And, uh, you know, Shaq, before LeBron, uh, you know, and uh, I guess the same year as Jordan, 
you know, he wanted to, you know, he moved to L.A. and he wanted to get entertainment. So, you know, he got into movies. He put out a couple of rap CDs, hip-hop albums, and he did a couple of movies. Well, he he, he showed some promise in uh, Blue Chips two years earlier. Uh, he showed some natural charisma, playing a basketball star, obviously, uh, a college basketball star. So he showed some, you know, obviously he could hold the screen. And so uh, then he goes and does Kazam where he has his name above the title and playing a real-life genie and just, you know, it's just awful. And then he'd follow this up with Steel, which was apparently a superhero movie based on some kind of comic book that obviously Marvel has not gotten around to incorporating Steel into the uh, MCU. Um, oh, Shaq must so, be yeah. unavailable to return. I'm sure that's why. Yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah Kazam and the interesting thing about Kazam I will say is uh the kid is played by Francis Capra Jr who um is real annoying in the movie but he actually showed real uh promise as a child actor 3 years earlier as uh the young kid version in a Bronx Tale um so here he is 3 years later so he's a little older but he's always he's he for some where he's very you know he goes to show you when De Niro's directing you, you learn to not to be a child actor. You learn to be natural and give a real performance. But now he's in this movie, this big budget special effects movie, and he has all the cutesy child he's, actor. He's being directed by kids. Starsky. That's what I was getting ready to say. Yes. <laughs> so, so you, Paul Michael Glazer. Yep. yep. So that goes to show you just what happens when a when Robert De Niro is not directing you, you, got, you become very annoying. As a director, he's not necessarily the cutting edge. <laughs> did he direct that? Uh, no, I, I thought that was... Did he? I thought that was Tony Gilroy. I don't know. No. Uh, he, he did uh, The Running Man, Paul Michael Blazer. Hang on. This, this requires some... some diligent the research. Man, the Running Man is good. Him, yeah, he directed mind. The Cutting Edge. My joke works. Bam! You're right. Boom. <laughs> okay. Well, I would have rather have seen Robert De Niro directing Kazam. That would have been interesting. <laughs> God, but where's that, where's that movie? The ultimate what-if universe. Wow. <laughs> On that same day, Multiplicity, Harold Ramis, Michael Keaton playing a multiplicity of roles alongside Andy McDowell. I like it okay. It, 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 it's kind of disposable to me, but I've been surprised by, you know, a lot of the Keaton fans that have stuck with him over the years, which why wouldn't you? He's awesome. Uh, they all, a lot of them cite multiplicity as a, as a favorite. Uh, he, what he does is pretty spectacular. I mean, he gives four distinct performances. My problem is not with Michael Keaton or with the performances. Andy McDowell is also good. She's a good sport in the movie. Um, I remember when I saw the movie, I was like, you know, this movie is just holding back. Like, if there, like, I kept wondering if there's an R-rated multiplicity cut because you know there's so many possibilities that they they kind of go up to the edge too, but then they they cut away. And I'm thinking, you know, they if they just really let loose and Harold Ramis obviously could let loose. I mean, that's the guy who co-wrote animal house and stripes. So he could do a, I mean, with this premise four 
you know, parts of a man's personality living under one roof and, you know, switching, you know, identity, you know, and, you know, switching off. I mean, the, the raucous possibilities for, you know, things to go crazy. I mean, Harold Raymond could do that. And uh, I feel that's the, the missed opportunity of multiplicity of not of just really going all kind of wild with it and, uh, you know, just letting your imagination go wild. But they just, they, uh, they kind of play it safer as a domestic comedy. But, you know, Keaton does give his all to these four types, you know, there's the prissy one, the macho one, the, the one that's the copy of a copy, you know, and he's kind of, he's got glitches. And all those, all those performances yeah. are funny, but you're like, just go a little, go a little further, go into the R-rated realm, and you'd have a, I mean, you'd have, you might have a little classic comedy. What do you mean, what am I doing? Splitting atoms. I'm having a smoke. What's it look like? Yeah, I can see you're having a smoke. What the hell for? What's to you? What's to me? I spent a thousand dollars to quit, remember? Don't ever blow smoke in my face again. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? I'll hit you so hard, I'll kill him. Guys, guys, come on. Come on, guys. Maybe we got to sit down and have, you know, a rap session or something because you're both feeling a lot of anger here and I'm just afraid, you know, you're like two lions or something. Shut up. Yeah, I never saw this one, actually, even though we had it at the theater where I worked. I remember uh, running it, and uh, you know, I was a projectionist, but I never actually got the time. I was just really busy that summer, and I just never got the time to sit down and watch it. And I, I still haven't all these years later. So mm. the visual, the special effects are good. I mean, they are pretty seamless. Of the, a lot of the split screens and the diopter shots that they use to, to get these multiple Keatons in one frame and one shot. I mean, it's as good a performance as Eddie Murphy uh, doing multiple roles, but, you know, where Nighty Professor goes all out, uh, this one kind of uh, holds back a little. Walking and talking out that same day, Liv, Liv, Schreiber, Liv Schreiber and mm-hmm. Catherine Keener. Liv Schreiber, Catherine Keener, and Hayes. This was uh, Nicole Hollis Center's debut film. Really good uh you know, one of those mid mid 90s uh, uh, Gen X, uh, you know, kind of indie rom-coms. This is I remember this was the same year as um, as uh, Beautiful Girls and uh, Flirty with Disaster. And so here, where the dialogue is really the the key thing, and it, and it has any and the premise is you know very smart. Where you know uh, Anne Hayes and Catherine Keener are best friends, and Anne Hayes and Lee Schreiber decided to finally get married. And uh, it deals with um, Keener's kind of jealousy. You know, she's happy for her friend, but then now she's jealous of her because, you know, they used to be single girls together, and now her friend's going to get married and, you know, be on, you know, leave her basically. And so she's a little, uh, you know, uh, insecure and jealous about that. And she tries to uh, project her insecurities onto their, uh, you know, their preparation for their marriage. So it's very subtle, very sophisticated in the way, you know, friends kind of, you know, they, friends who are, you know, outwardly supportive when you want to change your life, you know, but you're going to mess up their, their life, you know, the dynamic's going to alter and they get a little uh, insecure about that. So the film's very wise, but and Nicole Holliston has just been great on just zeroing in on those kind of minute uh, human nature shifts and in behavior in a in a group of friends 
So I've always been in a Cole Hall Center fan, and you know, so um, so yeah, this is where it all started for her. Really good, really good writer director. One of the one of the best we got out there. Yeah. I was just going to say, I just remember it having a very similar premise to uh, the 1978 film Girlfriends when I saw it. It's because that's essentially the same uh, same premise, but it's it's a different film. She took it in a different direction. So, yeah, it's 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 good of its type. July 19th is Fled, director Kevin Hook's follow up from a few years earlier to Passenger 57. This one with the enviable pairing of. Larry Fishburne and Stephen Baldwin, <laughs> and uh, well, and uh, Salma Hayek as the uh, well, that's a pairing too. all of its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it really? Is it Kevin Hook? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Gary, yeah, Kevin Hook. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's a you know, five years earlier, it would have been a good, probably decent summer action movie, but. Action had really kind of <laughs> upped the ante by 96, so this kind of programmer couldn't really fly anymore. And, um, um, you know, Fishburne, obviously, usually his name kind of meant some level of quality. Um, as for Stephen Baldwin, I think he had that one-year window of cashing in on his usual suspects. Uh, clout and um, he was always pretty bad at cashing in because on um, on that kind of thing. So wasn't a good Piper and Dodge, I believe, were the character name. And, and this was a, another thing of the movie. This was this was one of the worst ones that that we saw in this in this summer, where where the you know these guys were being chased around the the city or around the country uh, because they had a computer disc, and the bad guys wanted the disc. Uh, uh, Kazam was about a disc. Mission Impossible was about a disc with the, you know, the all the names of the under undercover operatives. So this was kind of the the go to thing of a. Wasn't Cloak and Dagger in '84, or was that like a video game cartridge? What was? What were they chasing after that? It was a video game cartridge. Video yeah. game cartridge. So we've upgraded the computer disc. They want the computer discs. So I gotcha. Kind of disc. The, gotcha. <laughs> so this was this was like the catch word. Uh, remember, there was like all those. There was even those commercials tied in with Independence Day with the the new Apple uh, laptop Pro, whatever computer that Jeff Goldblum uses to uh, infect the uh, uh-huh. the mothership. You know, I remember there were. I mean, they had the Apple computers com- uh, commercials with Jeff Goldblum in them. So yeah, so I mean, we were really getting into the. Well, that's why we haven't had an alien invasion. That that technology is readily available to anyone yeah. Yeah. to, to so, thwart uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, so this was kind of one of those uh, – it was a weird thing. Like, you know, this was the new MacGuffin was the computer disc. Well, good. I mean, Fled, Fled was, the disc is a lot Fled more attractive weird. than a floppy, so it just works better dramatically. Yeah, and yeah. – um, and, uh, and just imagine and back in the about, 70s, they, they, were, they were audio tapes. That's right. Well, that forget, is true. It was tape. Well, don't forget uh, Runaway. It was computer chips. Mm. Remember Runaway? It was computer chips. And um, and the thing about Fled, one of the, the the most annoying thing about Fled was they they'd have a like an action beat, an action moment, and Stephen Baldwin would be like, uh, he like he would name the movie that they're referencing. Like they'd come across 
two, you know, like two rednecks, and Lawrence Fishburne would antagonize him. He's like, "Are you crazy? Didn't you see Deliverance?" And uh, or they'd be on a bridge, and the the federales would, you know, be surrounding them, and they're like, "Okay, we got to jump off the bridge into the river." And Stephen Baldwin's like, "We're not booking Sundance," so it's, you know, so Stephen Baldwin is literally telling the audience what they're referencing throughout the movie. And those moments were in the trailer, too, because I ran it over and over again. And these different uh, it was attached to so many movies we ran that summer. And I you're you just repeating those lines brings it all back so vividly. I'd totally forgotten about that. But, yeah, I tell you, if you want to see the better version of Fled, that is uh, not a self-conscious, but is uh, a funny movie, but also a good action movie and knows that it's a B programmer action movie. From two years earlier is um, Gunman with uh, Mario Van Peebles and Christopher Lambert. That movie actually knows how to be funny without being self-conscious. And that one scene in Fled where they're they're having to wear disguise, so they decide to cross-dress, and Baldwin's like, what are you, crazy? Haven't you ever seen Glenn? Glenn? God damn. (laughs) Glenn or Glenda? (laughs) Shit. Okay, all that's still, still a good joke. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you, Adam. Uh, <laughs> July nineteenth, The Frighteners, Peter Jackson, starring Michael J. Fox. This is still a favorite among some people. I haven't seen it since it came out. I remember that uh, by that time, I I I, I like the the the, the gross out Peter Jackson, and I, I I don't like gross out movies, but I love Dead Alive. Oh God, yeah, and bad taste. Yeah, and um, so, Eat the Feebles, his puppet movie, which right? Nobody talks about. I'm a huge fan of that. So I'm looking at the Frighteners, and I'm like, he's going PG-13, big studio, yeah. and he's yeah. having to, to to kind of to soften his sensibilities. As it turned out, his sensibilities were very much a little bit more commercial than we were led to believe. I mean, once you fall into that, you have a a knack for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, the thing about two things about this. One, this was the follow-up to his most critically acclaimed film, Heavenly Creatures, right? Which That's managed true. to which great managed film. to great film, which managed to show off his kind of visual flair without you know going into the kind of transgressive, gross-out stuff, but still be just as uh, you know uh, you know intense, and but also a great story and you know great showcase early showcase for. Kate Winslet, and as for Frighteners, um, it's one of those, it, you know, it has its moments, um, but apparently, and uh, a lot of critics pointed this, thought thought this at the time, they had no idea that this was true, but a lot of critics said that, you know, it looked like a, a, uh, a reel, it looked like an audition reel for a visual effect for a big project, you know. Mm-hmm. And we all can ask, wonder what that project would have been. But we all can kind of guess. And then it turns out, you know, if you listen to Peter Jackson, he goes, uh, he pretty much admits this. He goes, yeah, I did the Frighteners as kind of a uh, a feature-length visual reel to show what I could do because I wanted to do Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what Frighteners is. That's kind of, that, that is what Frighteners is. The fact that people kind of stand up for it as actually a, you know, a superior Jackson movie is a little odd to me because i mean it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of noise a lot of visual gags but it, it's very very light on a on a narrative 
Well, the interesting thing about it, too, is, and, and I, I do have some affection for the Frighteners, I will say. It, it has its moments. Not perfect, but it has its moments. But uh, the following year, he was in talks to, no, it was two years later, I'm sorry, uh, leading up to the release of Godzilla, he was in talks to do a King Kong, uh, and he had a script that uh, was totally different from the one that he eventually made, because I've read it. And uh, they pulled the plug on that. Uh, as a result of the poor attendance and poor receipts for Godzilla. And so, but that was the movie I think he really wanted to do immediately after. And then of course, Lord of the Rings opened up and he, you know, we know the rest of the story, but uh, yeah. So um, they, they read his King Kong script and they said, this is not long enough. We need, <laughs> we need a three hour King Kong. Yeah. That's the, that's the movie that made me fall in love with movies. The original King Kong is perfect in every way. I can't wait to remake it. <laughs> I, can't wait to re, I can't wait to remake it and make it double the length. Yeah, the, the script, the first script he did, though, is quite different. I mean, it's it's really different. It, it uh, diverts a, a lot from what was um, finally the finished product. So it's, it's worth a read if anybody uh, wants to go out there and find it. So anyway. Okay, July 24th. Mr. Joel Schumacher had a big hit. Our our our, our guy, Joel Schumacher. A time Rest to in peace. Yeah. Yes. Peace. A time to kill. Matthew McConaughey burst onto the scene in this in this film as a major movie presence, a major movie star. I like elements of Time to Kill. I wish that it were more um, ambiguous. It's not this. It's not as complicated a movie as it possibly could have been. But this is a Grisham, and uh, nail biter. You know, page turner. This it's supermarket well, fiction. Were you aware that if convicted, they might be freed in only ten years? Yes, sir. I heard people say that. Yes, sir. Do you think men who kidnap a child should be free in ten years? No, sir. Do you think two men who rape a child should be free in ten years? No, sir. Do you think two men who hang a child should be free in ten years? No. Sir. Well, what do you think should happen to them? What would be a fair sentence? Objection, do you think Your they Honor. deserve to die, Mr. Henry? Answer the question. Carly, yes, don't they deserve to question. die. Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. Grisham's not a complicated writer. Uh, and this was kind of the uh, crescendo of that Grisham era of movies. Because uh, it's kind of funny. This is like, like I said, this, this is a crescendo because right after this, the. Uh, the the appetite for Christian movies kind of falls off the table because um, just about what Certainly three months later getting, we get in getting resurrected yeah. with the chamber yeah or the gingerbread man well three years later I want to see I mean, three that months again. later three <laughs> months later we get one of the worst possibly the worst Christian movie the chamber and then the following year I mean we do get one of the best in the Rainmaker and the Gingerbread Man we get a couple of the best ones and no one goes to see those. But uh, as far as Time to Kill is concerned, yes, I mean, you know, for some reason, you know, Grisham kind of, he, he gave a tacit approval to uh, Schumacher. He's like, Schumacher's my guy to adapt myself. Not Sidney Pollock, uh, but Schumacher. Oh, Schumacher's good my Lord. Guy. You know. Yeah. Uh, the Fuel you know, did pretty good, too. You know, so. the fir- the he liked but... what he did. He liked what he did with the client. Um, he liked what he did with the client. It was faithful to the book. Uh, and then, uh, and I think what's interesting about Time to Kill, you know, Grisham didn't have much, you know, you know, real say about the firm or the client or the Pelican brief. Um, but when it came to Time to Kill, he wanted input on all of that. 
and uh, script and so forth, and particularly who was going to play the lead. That was his. That was his, he. He had approval on who was going to on who was going to be the lead. You know, they, if he didn't approve it, the movie wasn't going to get made. And uh, so he he pretty much decided on McConaughey based off of he um, he saw Boys on the Side and saw his performance in that movie, which is a really underrated Herb Ross uh, movie, really really good. And uh, and and I was a McConaughey uh, believer going all the way back to '93 with Days to Confuse, and um, and then of course Boys on the Side, and, and I, I I'd been rooting for McConaughey and, and Time to Kill. Of course, he gets like the Vanity Fair cover and yeah. and all of that and. And, um, of course, the other interesting thing about Time to Kill, we get a mini Lone Star reunion because Chris Cooper is also uh, in this movie and uh, as one of the witnesses. And we get a precursor to The Negotiator because Kevin Spacey is the uh, prosecutor and Sam Jackson is the defendant. And um, this is also like Last Dance early in the summer. The, another problem with Time to Kill is that it um, – uh, it also suffers under the weight, uh, at least not financially, but if you want to talk about movies, it suffers under the weight of Dead Man Walking, dealing with like this type of topicality. Because it really is, it, it has the, the surface of being an issue movie, but it really comes down, basically, the movie's basically pro, it's a, it's a To Kill a Mockingbird knockoff, but disguised basically as a pro-vigilante justice uh, treatise. But it has all these big stars and all the roles. I mean, not just McConaughey and Jackson and Spacey, but, I mean, Sandra Bullock, Oliver Platt, Brenda Fricker, Donald Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland, Charles S. Dutton. Yeah, you know, it's got a great cast. I, mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I never equate this with Dead Man Walking. I don't think it has the seriousness of intention that Dead Man Walking did, and I think it was rewarded for that at the box office. Yeah. I mean, it has a great cast. I mean, they're not given much to do other than McConaughey, Spacey, and Jackson. The others, what you know, they bring star power to roles that are otherwise underwritten. And yet, here we are again, Joel Schumacher giving McConaughey like the first taste of like leading actor, mainstream movie star yeah. uh, spotlight, yeah, so, you know. So. And he would do that, yeah. you know, four, four years later with uh, Tigerland with Chris Farrell. I mean, uh, uh, Colin Farrell. Yeah. Um, you know, he did that so, throughout his you know, career. It, All right. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Uh, July 26th. Uh, and it's interesting. I just watched an interview. There was a talk because the Stephen King vacations here in Florida every year. And uh, so he usually does a fundraiser for the local library there. So he did a, an interview between he and John Grisham. And uh, they were both talking about, you know, well, not so much King anymore. Because he's on a he, he's on a resurgence in terms of movie adaptations, but um, once Grisham's movie adaptations dried up, so did his book sales. He was like, my yeah. sales my sales are way down. So he was during this brief period of time, he was the king, not yeah. Stephen King, yeah, but, now but the, the king. He keeps going back to the place, <laughs> he's gone back to the Brigant character, and you know, HBO bought it up, and McConaughey wanting to redo it, so maybe that'll. Uh, Revitalize some of the stuff. Yeah, I'd be in for that. The Adventures of Pin- here's a couple of releases from this day, the July 26th. The Adventures of Pinocchio and Joe's Apartment. Anything to say on either of those? I like Joe's Apartment. Oh, I'll vouch for that. I I think it's I think it's actually quite funny, and uh, the reviews were pretty savage, and it's very um 
it's my kind of humor and it's it's an acquired taste but it definitely if you if you like subversive humor and i mean you know what other mainstream film are you going to find where they're singing and dancing cockroaches, cockroaches that wow. are doing a um uh, they do a Busby Berkeley style musical number inside of a toilet bowl in a mainstream film. I mean, and Don Ho is in the cast. I mean, Robert Vaughn is the villain. I, I mean, I, I don't know where to start with this film. I mean, you know, it's it's crazy in a good way. And uh, I don't know. I have from the first time I saw it, uh, I laughed probably about 75 percent of the time quite heartily. And I will vouch for it that I uh, I still find it funny. I watched it last year during the uh, the quarantine and laughed quite a bit again. So okay. I'm going to say there's, Adam, the there's Adam's big recommendation this show. Yeah. You heard it from him. Yeah, Joe's apartment is funny if you're on its wavelength. I'll just say that. Which means on acid. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's uh, gross and tasteless. I mean, I get the joke, and I still think it's gross and tasteless. I much prefer the other comedy, gross-out comedy, of the summer that came out, I think that same week, uh, by the Farrelly's, uh, Kingpin, uh, which we'll get to, I guess, in a minute. Okay, we're, uh, we're, we're there. I'm I'm the opposite. I, I, I didn't uh, respond to Kingpin at all. So Kingpin, you know, you're talking about Randy Quaid, you know, being bad in Independence Day, and he is. He's much better, and Kingpin is just terrific at, uh, you know, Kingpin is just you know, it, it tries gags, gags that land, gags that don't land. Even the gags that don't land, you kind of laugh, you chuckle just at the attempt uh, at the gags. Uh, it uses Bill Murray properly uh, for Bill Murray's kind of unctuous uh, uh, smugness, and it gets it down beautifully. They knew how to use Bill Murray, Woody Harrelson, uh, as a kind of this sweet-natured con man and, you know, Randy Quaid is a simpleton, uh, doing kind of a variation on his last detail performance, set in this world of bowling. Uh, it's absurd. It's obnoxious. It's absurd. It's gross uh, and sweet all at the same time. Uh, underrated comedy, Kingpin. It's great. Uh, love it. Um, I think it's funnier than there's, there's something about Mary, which is two years later. It's a bigger hit, and I, I do like something about Mary. I think Kingpin, Kingpin's the better made movie. Um, and Dumb and Dumber is a better made movie. Um, as far as that, that, just to go back to the Adventures of Pinocchio, uh, that is a visually just stunning movie. Uh, it tries to be more authentic to the source material, so that's kind of the plus. But I mean, it's kind of um, like a lot of like a lot of adaptations when they say we're going back to the source material. You know that that's that's code for like we're going back for the source material so therefore our you should like our film more and i i kind of resist that like you know when antoine fuqua did king arthur like we're going back to the original text of the king arthur it's like okay like is it does it make it any livelier it's like not really it makes it even slower so yeah uh but the visuals in the pink in the pinocchio movie are, are pretty stunning but nothing, that's not nothing that's not animated it. right that's live action no it's live action but nothing will top the animated Pinocchio. That's still the... the, the or the Benini animated. version. Yeah. Never saw that right. on purpose. On purpose, I never saw that. Uh, there's something about... Uh, you know, I mentioned Dead Alive earlier, and I'm generally not into the gross-out stuff, but there's something about just the attitude of Dead Alive where the, the gross-outs, it's almost like um, it escalates the comedy... In a way, mm -hmm. 
It's so it's so outlandish. It keeps building and building. They can't possibly go farther with this. And, blah, blah. and that's what I appreciated the energy of it, the the humor that was derived from it. Uh, Kingpin, I just there's some there's some gross out stuff that uh, just from the very beginning that I just you know you're vomiting in a toilet and f- there's stuff that just I, it's not funny to me. There's some, there are some uh, eccentric character moments in Kingpin that I responded to, but as a whole, it's not necessarily something I returned to. Uh, Super Cop on that day, that's Jackie Chan, right? Super Cop. Right. Yes. Yeah, they were, they were. Uh, well, Rumble in the Bronx had come out in February. This was the year where they uh, introduced Jackie Chan into the American Bronx. It was in February. It was a surprise hit. Had a lot of fun. Even with the bad dubbing, the bad dubbing was part of the charm. So this was going to be the follow-up Super Cop. Had some amazing stunts, I believe. Michelle Yeoh is yeah. uh, in this one. And, um, I mean, just to uh, put a bow on it, I mean, I believe didn't Criterion just put out the Super Cop trilogy uh, on uh, Criterion. So, you know, you can't front on Super Cop. Um, yeah, they, really they, have a lot of, they have a lot of Chan on their, on their streaming yeah. Yes, I mean, great seven eight, and and they, you know, they're they're purists, so they have like the real can, you know, not the poorly dubbed can. So uh, yeah, really not that shit he did with Jennifer Love Hewitt. I mean, they're they're like yeah. pure Jackie Chan criterion. <laughs> the Karate Kid. The tuxedo is the one he he did with Jennifer Love Hewitt, right? Yeah, he's that's, karate, that's he's, right. He's, the best, he's, the best, <laughs> he's, the best he's wearing some superhero tuxedo. <laughs> yeah. He's the best thing in that Karate Kid remake. He really, he actually is pretty good. Um, I'll say that. Uh, I like him. Yeah, he's good. Uh, August second, Chain Reaction. This is the Morgan Freeman, uh, Keanu Reeves thing, right? Is this Andrew right. Davis? Yes, it uh, is. Yes, it is. Um, and so that was the thing, you know. Andrew, it's weird. How, you know, you don't know what happens with these directors. Andrew Davis was on a roll. I mean, he had a great streak. Above the Law, The Package. Under Siege. Steel Big, Steel Little. I mean, then Steel Big, Steel Little. <laughs> just, you're like, okay, well, you know, man, you know, and apparently that was like a dream project. So you're like, all right, you know, maybe he get, got that out of the system and we're going to move on. And so then I remember they hyped this as, you know, Andrew Davis back in action. And it's just, uh, you know, not, uh, it's not there. I mean, it's Keanu Reeves running for two hours. I mean, the, the money shot was... Keanu Reeves on a motorcycle out running a fireball. Um, uh-huh. and, and Morgan Freeman is kind of this mysterious company man for the government because he's found uh, a way to make uh, energy out of uh, nuclear fusion out of water, I think. And uh, I think this was like the first time we saw uh, Rachel Weiss, I think, was in this film. And uh, Rachel the thing is. Rachel uh, Weiss. And the Rachel thing is, uh, <laughs> Andrew Davis obviously is a competent, more than a competent action filmmaker. So there are, it, it's well made, it's well shot, it's well mounted, but, you know, it's just not there in the story level. Yeah, it's, it's another disposable, disposable movie. Even when, even when he does with formula, like in Under Siege, I mean, he knows how to enliven a formula story. So you, you kind of wonder what what um, what happened. I don't know what he's done. Uh, I know he. I think he did a perfect murder two years later. 
with Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow. And Which is okay. Kind of a little bit of we had a little bit of the liveliness you expect with Andrew Davis, and then see for me, he's 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 never been as compelling as the Fugitive. I, I know people talk about Code of Silence and all, but it, it like it's this big uh, emotionally more available performance from Chuck Norris. But what does that mean? He smiles in a scene, like he moves an eyebrow. <laughs> it, is, it is actually, I mean, it is easily Chuck Norris's best. Well, yeah, it's but a that's, very, uh, I mean, he is so stiff. It's it's well it's in the um it's more in the um Clint Eastwood Steve McQueen vein but it has some uh you know it has some um resonance unlike you know it has more resonance than anything he does in Missing in Action but you know it shows it shows what and An- Andrew Davis could do with someone you know as kind of remote as Chuck Norris he could like give him some humanity and it, same thing with Steven Seagal if you look at both I don't find that at all with Code of Silence. I think Code of Silence is right on there with the, all the other dumbass. No, I agree. Look at like, I agree. But if you look at Above the Law and it's Under Siege, I mean, those are the only two films where, you know... Steve Under Siege, okay. I, I, give you, I give you Under Siege. So Under Siege is more fun than it has any right to be. And a lot of that is at the doorstep of its villains as well. The personality that they bring to the proceedings. But he, he gives Seagal kind of this... Uh, uh, the humor and the package is great with Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones. So he had a good run there. I mean, uh, he really was a good classical action filmmaker. But then, like I said, starting with Steel Big, Steel Little, it kind of just, uh, he lost his mojo. And it's kind of weird. I mean, this happens with directors. They, they go on a streak and then they lose their. Barry Sonnenfeld's another example of a good director who has yet to. Who, who, Lost his mojo and has yet to get I do think the two people have their moment. That it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily in their grasp entirely. That there's a moment where everything comes together. It's kismet, and they just hit it, Hmm. and that's all they got. Everything else is trying to replicate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, so that's our thought on Chain Reaction. Even though we spoke very little about the actual movie Chain Reaction, Emma. Emma, is that Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that Doug, was, that Doug was, McGrath. That was really the first, truly the first movie where everyone basically saw that and said, okay, that's a star. Yeah. She's going to be a star. It's just, you know, we we are going to see a lot of her from here on out. She's shown a lot of promise in movies like Seven and uh, Paul Paul Bearer. And, um, but this is where we're like, oh, okay, now she we know she can do a lot. So yeah, Emma is terrific. And uh, anyone who saw the remake last year <laughs> that came out literally a month before the pandemic, you know, before the shutdown, the remake was actually getting real traction in theaters and like getting a lot of buzz. And some, I, I had a, I remember I saw it and I had a feeling like, well, you know, and, and I remember when the shutdown happened, I was like, you know, it's too bad because uh, this Emma, this remake of Emma you know, probably had a chance of like uh, getting some getting riding an Oscar wave, but the shutdown. Now, did, but did this original, did this uh, 1996 Emma, did did that lead to a resurgence of interest in uh, Jane Austen? Because there was a time in the 90s when. Right, right. No, this was kind of the the tail. 95 was the big Jane Austen year. Sense and Sensibility. Oh. Which was, I was getting ready to say. This is a modern update of uh, Emma. And Emma is kind of, a, you know, it really goes back to the real text. And Pride and Prejudice, yeah, that uh, uh, around that time, that, that Colin Firth 
uh, Pride and Prejudice TV miniseries that was that still airs to this day. So yeah, so this 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 couple of years here is where you had that Jane Austen Austen Renaissance. I did re- I did watch a biography on on uh, Jane Austen. It was something one of those things that PBS produces, and uh, mm-hmm. it was really interesting. It's a really interesting life story. Um, yeah. Okay, of which I will share nothing. I, I will offer you no insights into her life. I other than the to best, say the best, it's an interesting the, documentary. The best of the of the <laughs> Austen adaptations of this two year period. Emma's great. That's a that's a great movie. But you really want to see something that's like uh, different from all of that. Really check out the little known persuasion, which is kind of the dark side of of all that Austin sunniness. So I recommend persuasion. Huh. Matilda. That's the Danny DeVito. Uh, right. who, who's the girl? Mara. Um, uh, Mara Wilson. No, Lamar Wilson. Mara, Mara Wilson. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rhea Mara Perlman. Wilson. Danny DeVito directs as well. Uh, I forget who plays the villain, uh, Mrs. Trinch, Mrs. Trinchable, the head teacher. Um, yeah, Pam you know. What, okay, there you go. Um, DeVito, underrated director. You know, uh, War of the Roses, Hoffa. Uh, you know, this film. He he has a throw mama from the train. He has a very kind of uh, skewed visual sense sensibility. That's a lot of that's a lot of fun. Um, it's sometimes a little off-putting, like in a movie like Drowning Mama or Drowning Mona. Mona yeah. uh, uh, but you know when he when he get when he gets the right material like this, uh, he's uh, he's he's a lot of fun. And uh, I wish he would I wish he would direct more. Um, but uh, 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 I like I like Devito in this uh, kind of you know it's kind of like um, well obviously the movies have nothing in common, but you know it's kind of like when Nicholas Rogue did The Witches, kind of one of those scary but fun kids movies. All right, so let's go to August 9th. Here's another Miramax release, Basquiat. Any other year, this would be in my top ten. It didn't make my top ten that year, but it came awfully close. Love Basquiat. I do too, actually. Uh, And we get the kind of polar opposite of a portrayal of Andy Warhol from Jared Harris when he shot Andy Warhol. The, the Warhol we get in this film is actually kind of carrying and nurturing a mentor, um, which is 180 from what we get earlier. Um, it's it's uh, one of the best films uh, that actually shows the work that goes into yeah. being a, 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 a visual artist, uh, like a painter. Um, it's hard to to show that, like, you know, this is like four years before Pollock, uh, but it's very hard to to uh, show that on, on film. But Julian Schnabel, and it's a, it's a major early performance of uh, Jeffrey Wright. I mean, it's a... But it's, his, it's his first... It's a great breakthrough. His first, his first breakthrough. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a lesser year, he would have probably would have gotten an Oscar Harvey would have gotten him an Oscar nomination. Um, one of those star-studded Miramax casts. I mean, Jeffrey Wright, Claire Falani... David Bowie, Dennis Hopper, yeah. uh, Gary Oldman, Willem Dafoe, Christopher Walken, Benicio del Toro. Right. Um, I'd love to see it Gary again. Oldman. Actually, I, I tried to look it up uh, a few months ago because I wanted to see it, and I couldn't find it. But I did find this feature-length interview with Basquiat that I ended up watching. That was very illuminating. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but uh, you know, and I like the idea of casting somebody as uh, like Bowie as Warhol because it it adds the whole um, you know one one kind of legendary presence to portray another. It it mm-hmm. it I think it benefits from the from the pop culture sensation association between the two of them, mm-hmm. you know. One of the great uh has one of the best soundtracks of the year. Great soundtrack. Um and it has a uh I guess remember, you know, there's a lot of great scenes. I remember it's the one remarkable scene in that movie, I think you remember Jamie's um where uh Warhol's doing these uh these kind of prints on the wall and Basquiat just goes over and puts a piece of white over it, paints a white over it, and he tells uh, Warhol, see, now it's better. And it's just this remarkable sequence where literally these two masters of art are literally, like, you know, working on each other's work. Maybe you just shouldn't take things so seriously. Bruno called. He said that people in Europe are saying you're burning a candle at both ends. Well, I think it's awful that people are talking like that. I think you should, like, I don't know, stick around, prove them wrong. No one thought I could make it in the first place, you know? And then when it happened, you said, yeah, but it'll never keep it up. And now they say I'm killing myself, stuff like this. But then they, they don't want to clean up. Then they say, well, you, look, his art's dead. I don't care anyway because, you know, I'm clean now. I'm healthy. That's just not true, Jean. I mean, you phoned me at four in the... What are you doing? You're painting out everything I do. Wow. Oh, that's great. System with just the M. And that's one of those insider moments that only someone like Julian Schnabel yeah. can, like, give us uh, that no one else uh, could. So, yeah, Basquiat, uh, great. I still think it's Julian Schnabel's best film. I think so too. I I love at Eternity's Gate though. I did respond to that. Yeah, Eternity's Gate is great, and Before Night Falls is also uh, great. The one about uh, Cuba with uh, Johnny Depp um, is also great. But Basquiat just has a real live wire energy. So yeah, I I saw that in theaters. I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, Escape from L.A. Dear dear. Mm. Uh, I saw this in theaters and. it has it has a couple of great moments in it that you know John Carpenter's like with this material John Carpenter's incapable of not giving you some fun moments with this stuff. Um, it's just it's not as uh, uh, startling as Escape from New York was, um, but the the opening the setup is terrific. Uh, it's good to see you know Kurt Russell in the in the in the Snake Plissken makeup and in the jacket, so you do you get kind of a tingle. With that, and you like the setup, and you like his initial arrival in a uh, bombed out LA, but it kind of then it gets a little too episodic for its own good. Uh, but then, you know, then you get a couple of bright spots. You get like Pam Greer uh, showing up, and okay, that's fun. And then there's that great scene with him and Peter Fonda surfing down uh, Sunset Boulevard because uh, it's flooded. And, you know, like, you know, that's a fun moment, and Steve Buscemi's fun, but. The bad guy is not very compelling compared to, like, uh, you know, in Shape from L.A. when it was, like, Donald Pleasant. Was it uh, Cliff Robertson, right? Something like that. And then, yeah, I But so. I will say this. It has <laughs> well, he certainly had the great, tan to play the yeah. part. It has a yes. great, great final scene. The final scene of Escape from L.A. almost redeems the movie. The implications of the final scene 
are, are just are just kind of. Uh, I'll give you that. Uh, are just great. You just kind of wish what was leading up to it was a lot more fun, as what the the final scene kind of implies. Um, yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, the, oh yeah, sure. The final scene is, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. That's what makes the film. I, I remember that surfing sequence being laughably bad as far as the uh, effects go. I just remember the effects being really subpar to the point where there was uncomfortable laughter in the theater where I saw it. Uh, people weren't responding to it in the way it was intended. But, but, uh, but the visual effects of both Escape from New York and Escape from Miller, I mean, they're not on par with a Star Wars. They've always had a kind of, uh, B movie kind of practicality. And mm-hmm. You always could see the, um, you know, if even if you couldn't, you thought you could always almost see the Scotch tape. Even in, um, I mean, you could, I mean, you could tell it was model work in Escape from New York, you know. And so, you know, I I never held that against Escape from LA that the visual effects were not like, you know, ILM level because they were, ne- they're never meant to be ILM level in a, in a John Carpenter movie. He doesn't do ILM level visual effects. Same thing with like Big Trouble in Little China. Um, you know, I think to do. You know, so I that never bothered me. Well, I think the difference is in the original. He, he's obviously because of necessity had to use practical effects, and they pretty much worked. But he was trying to go for some of the digital effects with Escape from L.A. And I think that it, digital effects uh, were in such uh, in their infancy that he just didn't quite pull off some of the things he was shooting for. I, I, I'm not sure that I'm faulting him so much for it as I just don't think the technology was quite there. And he was trying to, you know, kind of keep up with the times and use digital effects, which were, you know, three years after Jurassic Park and two years after Forrest Gump had done, done them, used them in such uh, positive ways. And it just didn't quite, I just don't think it quite worked. But anyway, I do, I do love, I do love Carpenter. I love his aesthetic. Well, I do too. Um, and you know, out of all the guys, the master of horror guys, I think that he's, he's pretty much tops and he's, he's, he's built a career in different kinds of material as well to varying degrees of success. But, you know, obviously movies like Halloween and the fog and Christine, I just love the feel of them. I've mm-hmm. never been a huge escape from New York fan. I, maybe I haven't seen it enough. It's been too long since I've seen it, but I've never, I thought it was fine. I just never got on on board with that like I did his other movies that I love. So I wasn't especially invested in any way in Escape from L.A., and I can't even recall if I saw it. Uh, I was aware of it, but then I saw whatever shot of him on a surfboard or something. and Yeah, that's I, the one. I was like, yeah, I don't need to see that. That's the one. <laughs> All right. Yep. I did see this opening day. It's listed as – hang on. Let me make sure this is the one I'm thinking of because it's listing it as a drama. It's the one. Jack. Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. I just watched an interview with him the other day where he said, you know, I always say, like, if people say, what's the one movie of yours that we should watch that you'd recommend? And he said, I always, what always comes to mind is like a biggest failure thing. Uh, and a lot of people consider Jack a big failure, like my worst movie. So if you can if check out my worst movie and see if you like it. And maybe that will be the barometer of how you rate me, you know, necessarily. But um, I, I, it just seemed, uh, it's like if, uh, if Bergman made a police academy movie, 
it just didn't seem, which I'm not opposed to. I'd like to see that. It just didn't seem like, really, this was something that Coppola wanted to do. I think he just wanted to work with Robin Williams in some capacity. Yeah, well, and also, um, you know, Cop- and you would think Coppola would be able to do this and do what both George Roy Hill and Paul Mazursky did, which was to keep Robin Williams in check. Uh, in a material to keep him in check. Uh, okay, this is when you bring in a little humor, uh, but then rein it in. And Coppola didn't seem to uh, know when to do that for Jack, and he kind of just let Robin Williams do his thing throughout the uh, throughout the movie. And you would have thought Coppola would have been like, no, 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 bring it in a little, you know, rein it in some, um, because. Um, there's a couple of scenes that Robin Williams has with, um, of all people, Jennifer Lopez as his, I think his third or fourth, third grade teacher. And those scenes are played relatively straight. And Jennifer Lopez is quite affecting in her scenes. And they're played straight, not for laughs. And you're like, okay, that there's a little poignancy there. And I kind of see what maybe the movie could be uh, if you kept it on that kind of uh uh, light, delicate tone, but then he goes for kind of this slapstick humor, physical humor of the piece, and again, it kind of upends the the balance because you know it, this obviously wants to be like a this obviously wants to be like a cross between Big and like Peggy Sue got married, uh, which is you know a film a couple of did, but you know those two films are are masterpieces of tonal control, and that's something that. Coppola just doesn't have here. Um, so, yeah, so I remember when I saw it, it's just like, you know, you're just kind of, you know, if this was any other, you know, if this was a Stephen Herrick movie, you know, <laughs> you know, or a John Turtletop movie, we wouldn't have thought twice of like, well, that that was pretty bad. You know, what do you expect is a John Turtletop right. movie, a Stephen Herrick movie. But when you see Francis Ford Coppola on it, you're like, oh, wow, he, he, clearly like, didn't know what he was, you know, he was distracted on the set or something. And so you just kind of, you just scrutinize it a little bit more, especially since he hadn't made a movie in four years. This was his follow-up to Dracula, which was a movie all about tone, you know, obviously tone and atmosphere. So, you know, he, he's a master of tone and atmosphere. Um, so he's kind of, well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. He'd get his mojo back a year later when he did Rainmaker. Which he adapted yeah, I definitely love Rainmaker, but this one it was yeah. like you know what what inspired him to actually take take on this piece? It seems so kind of commonplace unless he thought there was a way he could inject some kind of magical realism into it, but it just didn't work. Yeah. It's almost like in order to convince him to direct this movie, like Bill Cosby made him a drink or something. <laughs> I just remember him saying at some point that he had a passion to make a, a biopic of uh, Jack Kerouac. And I remember reading in the trades that this was coming. His next film was Jack. And I thought, oh, he's finally done it. He made that Jack <laughs> Kerouac film. <laughs> and then when it came out, oh, boy, was I disappointed. I yeah, after this happy. movie came out, they sent him on the road. So they said, oh, hey, yeah. get on the road. Get away from us. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's the best Bill Cosby movie out this summer, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. August fourteenth. 
There's Alaska, and then there's House Arrest. Boy, that's a toss-up. So we're getting these late summer kids movies. I actually saw House Arrest in theaters. It's not very good. It's kind of one of – I think it wants to have kind of the anarchic spirit of like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But they. this is clearly a case where they're like okay, – Is House Arrest like Kid a, and Play, or is that something else? That's House Party. Yeah, House Party, yeah. Oh, okay. This house is, Arrest okay. is basically – Basically, um, the parents are fighting, and they're they're probably going to get a divorce. Right. And so the kids, they lock the parents in the basement so they can work it out. And then the other kids in the neighborhood are having their parents are having problems, so they get them down in the basement. So the whole, basically, the, all the neighborhood kids bring their parents down to this one basement so they can have this group therapy. And so the kids are up top and they're running wild while the parents are down in the basement, you know fighting it out. Kevin Pollack so, and Jamie I mean, Lee Curtis, right. I remember yeah, this. Man. And uh, Wallace Shawn and Wallace Shawn and Jennifer Tilly. Uh, and so I'm guessing like they're like, hey, we want to do one of those like something like Ferris Bueller's Day Off with kids ha- running around having a, you know, a, you know, a play day or, you know, in the neighborhood and they run there and they're, they're running the route. And they, they forget what makes a movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off actually work. Uh, you know, you know, you can't just have the kids run wild. And that's what makes Ferris Bueller's Day work. You know, there is actually a story to it and an emotional core to something movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And there's none in House Arrest. It's just kind of antics and yelling and running, and it just it just doesn't uh, doesn't work. By the way, uh, uh, that reminds me, one of our fans, uh, Herman. That's his. That's his screen name. That's not his real name. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar. Joe Eisenberg, our, our good buddy yes. that, that years ago wrote the that great making of Book of Carrie. Um, he listened to our episode, our first part of this of this series, mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted to put in some observations. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, about Twister. He, um. I don't know if I ever told you about how when it was being Twister was being made here in Oklahoma, I was working with a female filmmaker or wannabe one who had worked on the movie Safe, and she appears as a waitress in a diner in Twister. I'm thinking, and I started thinking about this: Is there a waitress in Twister, and he looks at her name badge and it's Grace? Her name is Grace, or is that from Mulholland Drive? I hmm. uh, don't know. They they do go to a they do go to a uh, yeah I know diner the, to get yeah. in a Twister. Um, I have a feeling it's Mulholland Drive because it cuts to her name tag and he's looking at it. But for some reason I thought is that Twister or it's so easy to get the two movies confused. The idea <laughs> the, he continues to say the idea of a drive-in showing a double feature of The Shining and Psycho in Oklahoma is so ridiculous. <laughs> It's more unbelievable <laughs> than anything else in the movie. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Uh, uh, okay. And here's one other point for you. Aaron at one point says that Tony Scott has all the flash without forgetting the story. Uh, does that apply to the hunger? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, there's your answer. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Oh, where where are we now? Okay, we're on uh, Alaska, August August fifteenth. Alaska, yes. Alaska oh, was oh, one of these uh, oh, was one of these nature adventure movies. Vincent Carthizer's in it, 
a very young Vincent Carthizer. Uh and Charlton Heston played the uh the bad guy. Uh right. in the movie. Um it's it's actually not bad. Uh you know, there's I was actually kinda of, by this time I'm a little old to watch these. This is one of those movies I caught up like a couple of years later on HBO on a Saturday afternoon and I was like, you know, it's pretty relatively painless. So it actually was well shot. It was well shot. So Alaska's actually not bad. Speaking of Charlton Heston I haven't even thought of searching for Motherload. Is that the name of that movie from eighty, the early eighties? Kim Basinger's in it with Charlton Heston. I thought it was just called oh, the Motherload. Is that what's called no, Motherload? The, the Motherload. I think that's what it's called. God, I haven't even. I wonder if that movie still exists, or if it just sure dis- it disappeared. <laughs> Motherload, nineteen eighty-two. Oh, Charlton right, Heston. Eight- code, uh, Car- Charlton Heston directed it too. That was that was one of those HBO staples. Be like, coming up later tonight after hours, the motherload. August fifteenth. Now here's the summer independent drama that had staying power, mostly because of that lead performance from Jeffrey Rush. This is uh, Shine. Overrated? Yeah. Either one of you guys consider it overrated? Maybe uh, slightly, no. but I do like it. I have some affection for it. I, I don't think it's. Uh... I'm not as over the moon about it as, uh, as as everybody seemed to be at the time of its release, but, but I had some affection for it, and and obviously for his performance, which is great. So uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it didn't make my top ten list, but it, I mean, it is a a towering performance in that movie. So the performance is impeccable. Um, so it's just if uh, it just follows the trajectory of this kind of. Uh, what do you call it? The, you know, the rise and fall of a of a genius. But uh, it it does have a it you know it's a classic case of it's not it's not what the movie's doing it's how it's told it's not what it's about but how it's about it. So you know if it's done well. Then yeah, but he had he had very, he had very specific circumstances and and disabilities that made that a, a specific character. My question yeah. is, there are some pieces that uh, I feel like this about a show I always want to do, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Because I just looked at that lead character and I was like, man, what a what an extraordinary challenge. But the character is all the movie was, uh, all that play was. There was nothing else really that to, to, to recommend or make it stand out other than that lead character. Was Shine the same way or no? No, no, no. Uh... The father is also a strong Armin Mueller Stahl. The, the father son relationship is also great. And um, was it Lynn Redgrave who plays the the therapist wife who finally like reaches him? She's also good. So there there are other good supporting uh, performances in that in that movie. Um, I guess what's overrated or the thing that what's the cautionary tale of Shine is that there was a lot of talk of like Scott Hicks being a real talent. Uh-huh. A, a new a new talent as a filmmaker, and turns out he was just basically, in my mind, a one hit wonder, because um, he's done nothing of note there that I can think of. Snow falling on cedars and hearts in Atlantis. Is that the same guy, yeah. Scott Hicks? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 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 I remember Richardson talking on. about how he was he he had Robert Richardson had attended some kind of screening. It was a retrospective of his work where they were honoring him. 
and he made the mistake of sitting through a screening of Snow Falling on Cedars, which by all accounts is a beautiful movie, but it, to, to his uh, observation, it was beautiful in a postcard sense. Like it embar- it, yeah. it embarrassed him. I, I think it's it was one of the I saw that at a advanced screening, and yeah, it is beautifully shot. But it is one of the worst movies I saw that in 1999. It's just it's an awful, awful movie. It's just an awful movie. Um, and when I saw when I saw Snowfall on Cedar, I was like, okay, well, obviously this guy does not. He he doesn't have good judgment. I could, that's, that was my takeaway. He doesn't have good judgment. We're going to be dealing if we deal if this guy had the career. We're going to get hits and misses, but apparently we've got nothing but misses. What's he been up so, to? Oh, he did No Reservations, which was that Aaron Eckhart, Catherine Zeta-Jones romance. That was probably the last thing he did, I guess. I mean, I mean, yeah, so he has no judgment. I mean, he can shoot a movie, but he has no judgment in his story or tone or pacing. That wasn't the last thing so, he did, but, you know. So, so Shine, Shine was just kind of this lightning in the bottle thing where he, like, it, it all came together. Yeah. Okay. What is the luck? I'm looking at his, the rest of his resume. Oh, he's making like Zac Efron and then vampire stuff. Okay. Oh boy. Got to do what you got to do to pay the bills, I yeah, guess. Yeah. I mean, I got no problem with Zac Efron. It's just Zac Efron should get a better director. Yeah, I mean, I I, <laughs> I actually like Zac Efron too. I I think that body switching movie he did with Matthew Perry was really good. Yeah, I said it. Uh, what I'm, what I mean, not, not, what I mean is not necessarily Zac Efron, but stuff, stuff along the lines of Nicholas Sparks. That, that's what Scott Hicks is doing now. Oh yeah, gotcha. Okay, August sixteenth. Well, speaking of Tony Scott, here we are. What a, what a great segue from, from Joe's uh, message to us. The fan, Robert De Niro as an increasingly psychotic fan of Wesley Snipes' baseball star. I'm a, I'm a fan of the movie. I stand by the movie. It's a great, it's a terrific late summer B stalker thriller horror movie. Uh, Del Toro, Wesley Snipes, Leguizamo, Ellen Barkin, De Niro doing, you would think he would have used up every trick in his book on playing this type of stalker psycho character, you know. Travis Bickle, Rupert Pupkin, uh, Max Cady. Turns out he actually uh, he's actually able to find some uh, variations, some different notes to play uh, in this film. Where in uh, in cases of like Max Cady, who's you know overpowering in his Superman physique and his kind of uh, uh, you know, in his uh, preacher from hell, philosophizing, he plays the character here in um, the fan, and it's this really pathetic uh, everyman, and who's just losing grip with reality. How do you think you got out of that slump, Bob? Say what? Got any idea what got you out of that slump? You know, Curly. I just stopped caring, man. What? I just stopped caring. You stopped caring? What do you mean? Hey, man, all my life I've been, you know, working to be the best, you know? Trying to be a perfectionist. 
And uh, I thought about it. That's probably where I made my mistake. And when Juan Primo died, oh, man, that just, that completely changed the perspective. I mean, I mean, come on, let's, let's be real here, you know. What are we doing? We're not curing cancer, you know. We're playing a game. That's all it is. It's just a game. So I stopped caring and relaxed. And then I started hitting. Stop caring. <laughs> so that's your fucking insight into life. Just stop caring. Now, of course, being a Tony Scott film, <laughs> the last 20 minutes of the film goes into Tony Scott overdrive and just, like, you know, puts the pedal to the metal and just kind of ramp, turns the volume up to 11, puts on the rock and roll and cranks up the rain machine and just goes balls to the wall for it. And uh, you either, by that point, of you, if you're into the movie and you're into Tony Scott, you kind of just smile and you go along for the ride. Um, and if you've just been kind of teetering throughout the whole movie, like, eh, I don't know, I don't know, and that kicks in, then you're probably going to be like, you know what, I'm out. I I was, I didn't know if I was in or out, now I'm out, because the movie's just gone over the edge. And that's what Tony Scott does at the end. He always just, you know, puts it in the high gear and goes over the edge. And you know, there's, there are some it. movies from this period of time, and I think it might be... Uh, why? Uh, because we've seen him uh, give among the best performances in modern cinema, we might take Robert De Niro for granted. And I do think that there are quite a few movies where he's he's pretty bland and boring. But uh, there are others that the movies might, might not spark necessarily, but if you really pay attention to him, he creates some great moments. And, uh, you know, stuff like, uh, stuff like Night in the City... I think he's great in, even though that's a movie that's not at all remarked upon now. Right. It's shown as pretty unextraordinary. But um, but the fan, I, I remember there being a sense of his performance was based upon some a level of empathy uh, that Tony Scott might have sabotaged at the end, of course, like you're saying. But I think there was a grounding there that he built that he built in that character, at least initially. There's some empathy in the first half. There's empathy, and then Tony Scott slowly and then rather quickly brings in the menace into the into the character. And De Niro, uh, who seems pretty game, he's like, "All right, I'll I'll rack it. You know, you want me to rack it up? I will. I will rack it up." There's that great moment. I mean, it's a scary moment, but it's also a funny moment when he's kidnapped uh, uh, Wesley Snipes' kid, and he's talking to uh, to him on the phone. And he's like, "Now are you scared?" And it's you know it's a trailer moment, and uh, it's a it's obviously a cackling line, but De Niro manages to deliver it with a little bit of a you know some real menace uh, into it. And um, Wesley Snipes is actually very good in this very uh, Barry Bonds unsympathetic professional athlete uh, role, and uh, he actually you know he holds his own in uh, his scenes with De Niro. Uh, so yeah, I like the fan. Like I said, it's not obviously it's not it's not top tier uh, Tony Scott. It's not this is the follow up to Crimson Tide and True Romance. So that's like top tier Tony Scott. Uh, but um, it's it's kind of the it's the Tony Scott film that never it never gets mentioned. Uh, it's rarely talked about, but uh, I, I I do like it. He did put it, it on probably, his tomb. Oh, go ahead. And it, it's on and his it tombstone, bombed. Adam. 
I was going to say, it is on his tombstone. Yeah, I think everything's <laughs> on there. <laughs> yes, they didn't forget it. So, yeah, for those that don't, the, for those that don't know, Tony Scott's tombstone yeah. at uh, Hollywood Forever is that where he is? He, yeah, that's, uh, that's he's right that's next correct. to Anton Yelchin. Tony yep. Scott, and it's kind of it makes you laugh when you see it. His entire filmography is is etched onto the side of his tombstone, <laughs> like every title. It's pretty great. It is. It is indeed. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um. I just remember I mean, having I, high expectations for this one, and uh, I, I guess maybe that was, that colored my uh, ultimate feelings about it because I thought uh, Tony Scott and a film about a a, a stalker, um, uh, okay, celebrity stalker. This this can't this can't miss. And for me, it missed. So, <laughs> but I did admire De Niro's performance. I, I agree, and uh, I, I just felt like it kind of fell flat. Um, and would this be one of his least grossing films? I mean, I, I think it's. Um, it mm-hmm. might be his his least person, maybe with the hunger, because um, um, I don't even think it cracked the top five. Yeah, uh, that that week. Um, so which is yeah, but weird. you don't hear any. I mean, the hunger has a lingering fan base right. too. Mm, that's and right. You, you don't hear that no association with the fan. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that is correct. But it still grossed seventeen million dollars more than our next movie. <laughs> and I'm, I'm ashamed to say I did see this when it came out, but uh, I need to watch it again. It's one of those Robert Altman movies because I'm an Altman fanatic that I need to revisit, especially ju- uh, from the fact that it's it was Altman's dream project. And that's Kansas City, uh, which I, I, I do recall when this came out that the, most of the critical raves you know, they were obviously very celebratory towards Altman, but they were especially taken by Harry Belafonte's performance as the as the kind of lead baddie, more more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I I was I saw in theaters also. I took my parents. I was like, cause I was an I was an Altman freak. So any Altman film that came to theaters, we were gonna go see. So and I remember just like they're like, okay, Altman. They're like, cause I, my my dad was a big fan of the player. So he was like, all right, Altman, the player. He like, what's this one about? I go, it's about jazz in the 30s. And my dad's like, what? It's like, it's like okay. Uh, I go, but Harry Belafonte did it. And my dad's like, all right, maybe give me something. Uh, so yeah, it's Harry Belafonte, Jennifer Jason Lee doing one of her, you know, people talk about Meryl Streep, but Jennifer Jason Lee does weird voices too, accents. Um, she was for a time. She was the forebearer for Meryl Streep during a period yeah. of time in American movies. She really was. Yes. But she's doing her Gene <laughs> Harlow. And then you got uh, Dermot Maroney and uh, Miranda Rickerson, who's this poor character thing. And uh, I remember reading the Newsweek review of uh, of um, Kansas City. And the, the critic, I think it was David Anson, pretty much said Harry Belafonte out Godfather's Brando. In um, Kansas City, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's high some praise, high praise. High praise. That's some high praise right there." Um, and um, it's one of those movies. I mean, it's one of those movies. You know, you see it once, and you're kind of like, you're not disappointed by it. You're not bored by it, but you're kind of like, "Hmm, what do I think of this?" And then I've seen it a couple of times over the years since then, and it's one of those films that does grow on you. Um, and I guess in a cliche, that's kind of like, I guess that's kind of how, um, jazz music works. And I, I, I don't 
tend to be a jazz aficionado. I know very little jazz, but you know, jazz is what I've read and what I little jazz I've heard. It's one of those deals that you know you need to hear a jazz record obviously more than once to really get the intricacies of it. And Kansas City is one of those movies where you know the couple of times I've seen it since then, you know I I've uh, I've noticed little pleasures throughout the movie uh, that have kind of like elevated like oh I like that a little more I like that a little more and there's that great um, jazz there's that great sax du- horn uh, duel um, at the, the hi hat club uh, that's like the centerpiece of the movie. That sequence always blew me away, even in the theaters. Like, that's a great sequence. And it really does, you know, the movie kind of uh, spins off of that, that centerpiece sequence. So uh, it was a good, I mean, it was definitely a bounce back for Altman after the pretty bad ready-to-wear Pret-a-Porter. That was the last one he had done. And so he just really got him back on his his, uh, his mojo. Because um, again, the Kidgerbrand Man and Cookie's Fortune and Gosford Park would all be follow-ups to this. And uh, what we didn't know then that we know now that basically he took that little time off before he did this movie. He was recuperating from his heart transplant in that two-year period. So he really finally rested up and really came back with a vengeance with this one. Well, I mean, I'm glad he got to do this one because at that stage, if this was a dream project for him or a dream subject for him, then he Mm -hmm. he could very well have been directing his last movie. So yeah. I'm I'm glad that he got to do it at that time. I am too. I'm assuming we have very little to say about Bordello of Blood. Uh, I oh, saw the I first Tales just... from the Crypt movie, but I didn't see this one. I was going to say any, the, the any first pra- one came any, out. Any praise for Dennis Miller's performance in this? Yeah, let's hear it. Oh, I, I don't know. He no. was in it, right? Right? Angie yeah, Everhart. He was. And, uh, yeah. Angie Everhart. And yeah, see, when Dennis Miller's name comes up on the credit, you know you've seen a movie of quality. <laughs> well, the net or disclosure. I mean, he hasn't been. Like I said, you are seeing a movie of quality <laughs> when you see in the credits. Uh, okay. Also on that day, a movie I really liked, I thought was very charming, as Tin Cup. And this was love Tin Cup. This was the movie that uh, you know I could give two craps about golf, but this was. Um, a return of a Kevin Costner that I really liked and responded to. Honestly, I think most people that followed him from the beginning, this was the Kevin Costner they loved the best. Uh, you know, the the aw shucks, all American kind of guy whooping it up. Uh, whether it be you know Silverado, I remember seeing Silverado, and then I I saw the turn that his movies made, especially when he was doing The Bodyguard and movies of that ilk where he was trying to channel this this steely Steve McQueen thing. And I thought that that played off the opposite of his charms that were in, in, inbred in him from the beginning. And I feel like Tin Cup really was a return to that Costner. And I liked it. I love the casting of Don Johnson as a rival because I think Johnson has a, has a kind of similar boyish charm. And I thought the two of them going at it would be great. And so, I, in general, I, I I like I enjoy this movie. I, uh, I love Tin I love Tin Cup. I I I love it as much as Bull Durham. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm not a golf person either. Really, don't, I actually really despise golf, but I love this movie. Um, and um, 
Costner was in this kind of slump. Um, I actually liked him in a, I really love his performance. He's real scrappy in A Perfect World, a Clint Eastwood movie, where he uses some of that awestruck charm, but it's used against the character in a weird way. And it's kind of startling because he plays a bad guy. And um, so that, that's kind of interesting. But then we get this string of movies where uh, he's kind of just overly stoic. You know, I'm talking about Wyatt Earp. Right, the stoic. War. That's no one, the good word. Yeah, no, no one remembers The War with Elijah Wood and uh, then Waterworld. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, you know, just bad, bad, bad. You know, just, you know, not what you want to see. And then this comes in like, yeah, this is the, the costume we, we, we fell in love with, with, you know, no way out and bull durham and uh you know field of dreams this this is the costume and renee russo it's her best uh leading lady performance and um keeks marine we should give a shout out to keeks marine uh as his caddy. Marin? keeks marin yeah keeks marin is his caddy yeah yeah, yeah. uh yeah, he's he, good he he deserved the best supporting acting nomination yeah, because they 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 are yeah they are a good pair in that movie too. I mean they're well paired and and he he really does support him. And this is Ron Shelton again writing directing and Ron Shelton knows what you know how to use Costner. He knows sports. I mean obviously both Bull Durham and then this, but also White Man Can't Jump. Um, I kind of wish he would. Uh, I wish he would you know do one more Costner sports movie. Um, yeah, for one more and an episode. ending that subverted the the triumphalism of, of yeah, a yeah, regular sports true. movie. You know, and I, I read I read uh, there was an interview with Robert Town where he was talking about personal best and and they said, would you say that personal best is a kind of, kind of how you can how you could find victory and defeat? Uh, and he said, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And I just watched Personal Best for the first time last week. It was on Criterion, and I I, I loved it. But I, I I know that you know it might be considered a a big risk to end Tin Cup like that, because people people are built up to expect, you know, what they expect from any sports movie. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you could feel hearts dropping <laughs> when when he sabotaged himself at the end of that. No, it's a great, it's a, it's a great ending. No, it, it is a great ending. Um, but it's different than Bull Durham and White Man Can't Jump, which doesn't end with big games. And here he does have to end with a big match, but he does put a twist on it. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, yep. Ten Cup made my top ten list that year. Okay. August 23rd, do we have anything to say about <laughs> Carpool or Foxfire? Um, not uh, on this carpool, end. Carpool, I remember. I don't remember Foxfire. Uh, carpool, I remember. Um, you know, after True Lies, uh, they're like, "Oh, well, Tom Arnold, he's actually kind of charming. Let's just give him a couple of movies." And uh, there was uh, what Big Bully, I think, was one that they. That's gave right, him, Rick then, Moranis. Yeah. Yeah, and then this one, and he had a couple other movies. Um, this was him and David Paymer. I believe it was, um, and uh, you know he's still actually kind of. Uh, and oh, the year before was uh, nine months with Hugh Grant. Which, no, uh, yeah. Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant hated him on the set. He just he thought he loathed uh, Tom Arnold. Um, but uh, you know, and he's actually you know he's actually kind of funny in some scene in Carpool, which is it's just one of those late summer high con- high concept cheap kitty comedies that just doesn't work. 
Yeah. Also on that day, Freeway, which has become in the years since an underground kind of sensation. Great movie. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland movie. and Reese Witherspoon, kind of a uh, Little Red Riding Hood thing. Outstanding yeah. movie. Outstanding. Yes. Matthew Bright. Terrific thriller. Matthew Bright. Poor Matthew Bright. This is one of the great talents in the indie world, but he has such bad luck with the uh, financiers and studios distributing his movies. Um, you know, his movies rarely get seen. Uh, but Freeway is that one that finally that did get some did get some decent distribution, and the critics tried to do all they could for it. Yeah, and it was Reese Witherspoon. This was five years after Man in the Moon, and this was like this was the performance. Critics who saw this movie saw her. They're like, okay, well she's going to be a star in another couple of years. Keep an eye out on her. And you know, three years later, two and a half years later, we get election. Um, uh, but yeah, and Kiefer Sutherland. Probably his best screen performance. Probably his best performance in a movie. Um, he just, he's, he's, it's just a great, great villain. And um, it's just a great mix of like outrageous violence and black comedy. Um, uh, yeah, no, I love, I love Freeway. Love Freeway. Ditto. Right there with you. Yeah, I liked it too. Uh, okay, here's a movie that none of us will like. <laughs> we like it for all the wrong reasons. Let's just yeah. say it that way. The Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, who 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 I, was the original director that was taken off? It was the screenwriter, I yeah. believe. Uh, it was the guy who guy. directed Hardware, wasn't it? Um, yeah. What is his name? I can't think of his name now. Um, drawing a blank. Yeah. Yeah, he's a real... Richard Stanley. Real, Richard Stanley. Richard Stanley. Right. Richard Stanley. He's a real. If you've ever read like in-depth interviews with the guy, he he's a real self-destructive kind of character. He he seems to have a habit of self-sabotage. Uh, doesn't seem to know how to play ball at certain key moments. So he got yanked from the director's chair on this one, and uh, <coughs> they brought in. Uh, Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer. Man, one of the delights of the new Val Kilmer movie is uh, the documentary Val on Amazon Prime is seeing the behind-the-scenes footage he shot on the set of that. Uh, people weren't uh, very big on Frankenheimer, but Frankenheimer went in there with a job to get it done, to, mm-hmm. make, to make the days and get it done, just as just as practically without any kind of bullshit as, as possible. He was kind of a, the, tried to be a patent on set to get everybody in line. And when you're dealing with a movie with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando and, you know, <laughs> what, a, what a colorful set. I, I could see where people would look around that set and say, oh, that's colorful. I could also see where they'd look around and say, man, this is hell. <laughs> this, is, mm-hmm. this is like if you're hallucinating in hell, this is what this that would look like. What I understand, I haven't seen the Val doc. I understand like there's some footage of like Val and Frankenheimer going at it. Oh um, yeah. Or having some tense exchanges. Telling him to put his camera down because he keeps insisting on filming everything uh, behind the scenes with his video camera, and he tells him to put his camera down and get back to work. You get the sense that Frankenheimer's like just just stand here and do what I say and let's get this in the can. Yeah. There's no time for talk. We're beyond that. And, uh, and Frankenheimer, you know, God bless him, he was old school. 
you know, coming from the 50s and 60s, he he didn't futz around. I mean, this is a guy when he was doing uh, prepping reindeer games, um, you know, he had Vin Diesel in, and uh, but Vin Diesel refused to, uh, I guess, I think the, the story is he refused to show his arms. Uh, he goes, I, I only, and the, the line was, Vin Diesel, I only show my arms for Vin Diesel movies. And uh, Frankenheimer went to the studio, and they're like, okay, get rid of him. Yeah. You know, get someone else. And they got Ben Affleck. Obviously a, a upgrade. Um, so, yeah, you know, so Frankenheimer didn't, he didn't mess around. Yeah, I don't blame that's Frankenheimer, he actually. I mean, he, that's that's essentially what the studio hired him to go in and do, to put this, take, the, yeah. take control of this. And, you know, he's got the, the, the five-decade career in movies. So he's he, yeah. he knows what the hell he's doing. He knows how to get it done. Yep. Yeah. That's why guys like Roy Scheider and Val Kilmer, I mean, uh, uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, they they would sing the praise, you know, praises of Frank Hammer. No, that guy's the real deal. He get it done, you know, and all that. And and Island, as far as Island, Doctor Moreau, I I went opening, uh, I went that weekend. I think I went on a Sunday night. Me and my mom went. You know, I heard all the stories. I'm like, I gotta go check this out. So. Me and my mom went. It was a Brando. Movie. I was like, I want to see a Brando movie in theaters. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it was the only chance I was going to see a Brando movie in theaters. <laughs> Never seen Brando on the big screen. Uh, and you know, it's one of those movies. I actually was surprised. I'm like, I, I liked it. I mean, it's obviously a very, very, very uh, B picture. This kind of mad scientist B picture. Brando is a lot of fun. He's kind of this beefy Truman Capote. Uh, look-alike in the in the movie, and he's kind of fun and messing around with his lines. David Doolis is really really good in the movie, and it's just kind of this this a lot of weird stuff is going on, a lot of action, and um, it's a little crazy. You don't really you can't follow it all the time, but uh, I could probably say that about a lot of the you know science movies of the fifties, like Donovan's Brain, uh, and I've always you know. To be fair, the the story of the island Doctor Moreau has been told many times before. It, it's never really been that coherent to me to begin with. So I, I you know, the, the 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 source material is always kind of a little wacky to me to begin with. So considering what they were dealing with, I thought I was like, well, Frankenheimer actually kind of salvaged something bordering on like uh, watchable on with this film. Yeah. So I remember, you know. I, for, I... I, I was ho- I was hoping for a movie of of B movie pleasures like a kind of a, it's it's so bad and wacky it's good. I would say I would return to this, but I don't much feel like returning to it because I, I was just so bored by it. And, and Brando's I, fun though. Felt the same way. To watch, you're just fascinated watching Brando, just what he's doing. You know, every any little tick, any little. Yeah, I got. I, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, you can at one point you can even see his earpiece in a, in a couple of shots. And by the way, most most apparently... most of the movie when you don't when he doesn't have dialogue, it's not even him. It's his stand-in mm-hmm. or his sit-in. <laughs> yeah, as Cause, usual. Because the double is not I standing. My favorite Brando joke. I remember Val Kilmer was doing some interview on E. I think it was for Heat and. Or someone he or Batman, and they're like, "What are you doing next?" He goes, "Oh, I'm doing a, I'm doing the Island of Doctor Moreau with uh, Marlon Brando." Pause. Uh, Marlon plays the island. <laughs> Just kidding. 
And uh, <laughs> I always thought that was like, I thought that was Val's best joke. Yeah. I watched a lot of Brando stuff last week. Not movies, but but interviews and retrospectives and that kind of thing. And yeah, what a presence we'll never have again, obviously. That's well, the truth. The best, the best thing about Brando is that Showtime doc. Listen to uh, me, Marlon. See, I think the best thing about Brando is the, the four-hour documentary that aired on TCM and then was taken out of distribution. Because mm. they interview everybody. Pacino and there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of people interviewed in that movie. It's such a great... Somebody, somebody, somebody what? I was going to say, somebody surely has a copy of that out there floating around somewhere. Yeah, and I don't know, why, I don't know why TCM buried it. Like it's such a weird thing. Like, it, 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 was yeah. there a rights thing, or was there a request from the family? I don't even know. That's weird. Yeah. Also, on that day, she's the one. This is the Ed uh, Burns, Jennifer Aniston mm-hmm. movie. Tom Petty doing the music. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that soundtrack still sells. Yep. This was his follow-up. This was his, I guess you could say, his studio follow-up to. Brothers McMullen the year before, which, and when I say studio follow, I mean like he actually got like you know a budget of like you know three million. Uh, Robert Redford produced, I believe, or Jack produced, and yeah, it was uh, it was uh, Jennifer Aniston, Maxine Bonds, who was Edward Burns' girlfriend at the time, Cameron Diaz, John Mahoney, and then Edward Burns himself. I actually like this film, um, and I'm actually I'm and I'm actually an Edward Burns. Uh, fan, at least of his, uh, some of his films. I like Brother Mullen. I like She's the One. Uh, I, I think his best film is a movie called The Groomsman uh, that no one saw from like 2006, I think, with uh, him and uh, John Leguizamo and a few, two, uh, two other guys uh, preparing for a, a weekend, uh, a week-long wedding. And I really like The Groomsman. Uh, but yeah, um, Burns, he has that very kind of uh, working class Long Island vibe about him. I like his TV show on Epics, uh, Bridge and Tunnel. Um, he's all grown up. He's now playing a dad uh, in the 80s. It's pretty good, actually. And um, I give him a lot of... Uh, I, I don't dump on Edward Burns like a lot of people do. Um, he can be a little kind of off-putting, a little unctuous sometimes. I actually think he's a little out of step in Saving Private Ryan. He comes off as a little too modern compared to the other guys in that movie. Uh, but that's just a very, very, very minor quibble with that great movie. Uh, but she's the one I do like, obviously. But what I find curious, because I know he's friends with him, he names the movie after a Springsteen song from the Born to Run album, but no Springsteen music in the movie whatsoever, not even uh, that song, which mm-hmm. I always found a little... Uh, curious, but uh, I like this film. Uh, what this what this film really did was um, more proof at the time that Cameron Diaz was a star in the making. She'd done The Mask, and uh, and then this film. This was two years before Something About Mary. Next, the following year, we're gonna get My Best Friend's Wedding. But this was uh, Cameron Diaz was still paying her dues, and uh, she she kind of steals the movie. She really steals this movie. Also on that day, August 23rd, this was uh, the Spitfire Grill. Wasn't this another kind of Sundance sensation? And the well, that, yeah. one, that, that one top pride at Sundance. Yeah. And it's it's gone down as one of the 
one of the worst films to win the top prize. Yeah, uh, that 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 was a definite moment when the sun, when the Sundance luster kind of dulled a little bit. Because I remember seeing this opening night too, or we we screened it uh, the night before it opened, and I was like, oh, that, "That's what that is. That's all there is." Uh, <laughs> it's a little precious indie. You know, you know, you can go through the history of the Cannes Film Festival and look at the winners of the Palme d'Or, and you'll find a couple of winners. You'll find a few winners in there, and like, that was not a good choice you know but overall whatever wins the palm door you're going to be like well yeah that, that's a pretty good movie that i can see why they picked that you know even if you don't like the movie you're like eh, you know i get it uh but i'm sure someone will do an article one day of of like all the palm door all, all the grand prize winners at the, at the sunday film festival and something tells me we're going to get there's probably well hell even the audience winners you gave your top prize to, yeah, because it's, it's so do, that do, film. Do you like this, later, this or Happy Texas more? <laughs> I actually, I mean, I don't like Happy Texas, but at least Happy Texas has um, Steve Zahn uh, comic performance in it. So at least it has something in it that I can watch if I was to have to watch Happy Texas again. At least Steve Zahn is something, you know, there's something there to divert my attention while there's nothing in the Spitfire Grill. I don't even know if that director ever got to do a follow-up after the Spitfire Grill. Mm. That's how bad that movie is. That same day, a very Brady sequel. I'm a fan. I'm a you're, fan. you're a fan of the sequel. Point. Yes, I am. I actually think it's... Go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's actually slightly better than the first one, and I was a fan of the first one. Uh, I think it's very clever. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, they take they move the locale to Hawaii for this one. It has a clever plot. You know, Tim Matheson shows up at the door, and he's claiming to be uh, Mrs. Brady's first husband, whom she thought was dead. And so they're having to deal with all that. And, you know, there's just a lot of recurrent gags that totally work throughout the film. And I don't know. I, I just think it's, um, it's a lot of good stuff going on there. And so uh, I really, really enjoyed this and uh, I, I think they're both good but this one's just even a little bit better i think so well yeah um i like the first movie uh this one what's fun about this one they realized they could they could be a little riskier in the humor and so because now mrs brady's first husband has shown up both uh, greg and marcia realized that they're uh they are not uh related so now they start to uh have sexual feelings toward each other the gag being that they weren't related to begin with so uh you know so there's that gag and then the whole you know they're still cheery but like adam's family values the second Adam's family movie they they realize you know they get some they get a lot more laughs when you bring the brady's and you contrast them with the real world so like when there's a sequence when they're on an airplane and they uh, they do one of their 70s Music, you know, song and dance numbers to cheer up the uh, other passengers, and the passengers are just kind of like mortified. And the 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 flight attendant comes on the PA with the people dancing and singing in the aisles. Please shut up and sit down. And uh, you know, it's it's that kind of uh, real world humor that punctures the Brady's optimism that kind of get, you get the big laugh from. 
Yeah, thankfully, uh, Paramount is getting ready to issue both this and the original film in a two uh, two for the price of one Blu-ray set in a couple of months. So, finally, getting a Blu-ray issue. So, thankfully. Nice, nice. Okay. Yeah. Good movie. Good August movie. August thirtieth. Crow, City of Angels, the sequel. Yeah, I mean, the Crow, the original Crow, Alex Proyas' Crow with Brandon Lee, was such a special, one-of-a-kind movie. Um, both, you know, you know, it, Brandon Lee made that movie, and so did Alex Proyas made that movie, made, elevated that material into something, you know, unique and visually striking and powerful that, you know, affected Merrimack, Harvey, like, oh, we, we got a series here. Let's just, you know, we'll get another guy, new crow, and new story. And you're like, no, you're kind of missing the what made it all special. And so it's not the story. It's not the, you know, it's the character. It's the whole package. And, it, you know, no one's going to bother with it. So, yeah, okay. didn't bother with that. Okay, do we have anything to say about First Kid, Normal Life, Pusher, or The Stupids? Well, I will say something about Normal Life. I think that is a very underrated movie. Um, sadly, did not get the distribution it, it deserved. Uh, it went straight to HBO for the most part. I think it had a very limited theatrical run, but it was uh, directed by, uh, I think it's uh, James McNaughton, the guy who made Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Made was, Normal uh, Life? Dir- yes. Yeah. Wow. Yes. It and a, it, it was a follow-up uh, to uh, Mad Dog and Glory. Right, yes. And it was uh, at the time when Luke Perry was a big deal on Beverly Hills 90210, and so they they were looking for for movies to turn him into a potential you know uh, big big screen star. And this was supposed to be it, and it just I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was the company that financed it lost uh, that they didn't have enough money to promote it or whatever. But anyway, it's it's a it's it's a saga of a. Um, you know, a, a, a lovers who rob banks, and it's uh, Luke Perry and Ashley Judd, who was a hot commodity at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, if you can find it, I I have it. Uh, a a um, somebody was uh, lucky enough to put it out there. It's not, I don't think, commercially available anymore in uh, in uh, the the, uh, the U.S. or North America. But anyway, it's you can find it online uh, in places. But it's worth seeking out. Normal life. It's a uh, it's quite a quite a compelling little crime drama, I think, and uh, sadly, like I said, just went straight to HBO. So I just wanted to to uh, mention that one. Yeah, both this and Freeway actually were on HBO first. Right, then that's got correct. Theatrical releases. Yeah. Um, and yeah, actually, Judd, you know, he had done Ruby in Paradise, and he obviously has a, a bit part in Time to Kill. But this was actually, I think this, I think he did this before Time to Kill, and he's actually he's actually the lead. Uh, the real lead in the film, and it's inspired by a true story that took place in, I think it was in Chicago a few years earlier, and there were this um, this couple, these lovers, and Matthew Perry was this straight arrow guy, I think he worked at the post office, and then, but actually Judd, he meets her at a bar, but she's a very um, tempestuous type of girl, kind of has a quick temper, uh, and um, like, you know, she kind of likes thrills, likes action, you know, really likes, you know, to live on the egg. And Matthew Perry is not initially into that, and but she likes to live beyond her means, like a lavish lifestyle. And so he uh, he uh, decides, you know, he loves, you know, he's pretty much in lust, in love with her. So he decides he's going to become a bank robber. 
to keep her in style. And he, he basically, he robs, he, un, at first he doesn't tell her that he's robbing banks. He gives Robin Banks to give her an allowance every month. Like, look, okay, I'm going to give you $3,000 a month. Here, you know, go buy whatever you want, you know, and, you know, pays the bills and all that. And then she, one day, she finds, she sees him, uh, catches him robbing a bank, and it turns her on, you know, incredibly. Uh, and so she wants to be a part of it. So he has to train her, and uh, now they both are robbing banks, and it uh, becomes a big deal. And uh, it's like this. Bonnie and Clyde, but, you know, they're just doomed from the beginning. It's like a new uh, generation's wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good uh, movie. It really is. It it really is. She's great in it. He's great in it. I mean, Matthew Perry, he he really had the potential uh, to be Uh, a real actor. Luke Perry, Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Luke Perry. Luke Perry, sorry. (laughs) Uh, uh, Luke Perry really had the potential to be a a real actor after uh, 90210 if he if enough people had seen what he could uh, do uh, in in certain movies. He did this, and he's good, and he had a small role in The Fifth Element and a couple other movies, but, you know, they just never... And, you know, he's terrific in his very small role in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, but, yeah, Normal Life, great, great movie. Okay. Find yeah, it if you not, can. Yeah. And also The Stupids, that was the John Landis movie with... Uh... Here's, here's the cast. Christopher Lee, Tom Arnold, Jenny McCarthy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, now I remember. Yeah, Tom Arnold. I mean, this was his make or break uh, month because he had two movies yeah. where his name was above the title. Carpool and The Stupids. And, um, and he broke. Carpool's, Carpool's better. <laughs> he broke. Okay, the last the last release of the summer, at least the summer season that we're talking about, August 30th, The Trigger Effect. David Kep, who built a name for himself in screenwriting, gets a chance behind the director's chair for this Universal movie about a blackout and how 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 various people uh, react during a blackout for self preservation. Elizabeth Shue, Kyle McLaughlin. I liked it Michael when I first Rooker. saw it. I'm a, yeah, I'm a fan of this. Uh, Dermot, also Dermot Maroney, Richard Schiff has a has a great cameo role as a as a proprietor of a gun shop, and he's like up in the price, like tripling the price of the guns, of the rifles, or the firearms. Um, uh, no, uh, Michael T- uh, Richard T. Jones. Um, no, no, no. I like and I I, I it kind of tapers off towards the end, but the first half of the movie is just beautifully tension filled. Um, of how people are trying to maintain their calm and maintain their civility in a pressure cooker situation and tempers are starting to flare, but they're trying to like, okay, let's just, let's just work this out. And they're, they're trying to strategize and seeing if they can, they're trying to stay one hip, one step ahead of everything. And it's just all going wrong when things piling on, on top of another um, I think I think it's a terrific, terrific movie, and it it had it it for the most part it really does stay earthbound and tries to be as realistic as possible. The 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 opening scene is terrific. It takes place at a movie theater where a lot of these characters, a lot of them, some of them who don't know each other, they're kind of interacting without knowing knowing it at a movie theater on how and it kind of the movie kind of cues us to these um, 
unconscious social cues and prejudices that we don't realize we have and that they're all going to kind of uh, either fall away or be heightened when this uh, calamity strikes. Uh, and the film is very wise and very smart about how race plays a part in all of this without like uh, spelling it out. Um, but it's all there. So yeah, no, this is one. Of, uh, this is a really, really, really good movie. And on a bright note. Okay, summer '96. Done. We'll it's do good this. To relive we'll, the memories. We'll do this again. Hang on, let me check my calendar. Yeah, next year. <laughs> <laughs>
Good night, Matilda.